0: Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are finishing up with the third and final part on my series about the influence that the Roman Republic and classical republicanism had on the founding of our nation and especially our constitution and our system of government. Hey, greetings, welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. Uh, this is the podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, as I said, this is the third and final part in my series on the hist- or, or the relation of the Roman Republic and the classical Republican tradition uh, to the U.S. Constitution and our system of government. Now, if you want to watch part one and part two, which I suggest you do, they give a lot of back information you're going to need. Uh, I'll be putting a link to those in a little card in the upper right-hand corner of this video right about now. And if you're watching the audio version of this, uh, you can just go look down in the description, and I will make sure to have a link to those videos uh, right there where you can find them all right and while we're talking about down in the description let me just remind you guys real quick that I do do uh in an audio and a video format of this show you can find it on a number of different platforms those are all linked down in the description you can also find a link down there to uh the show's new web page that I just put up recently it's still under construction but what's up works that is pretty cool uh and You can also find uh, work that I do. I I write a lot of articles on different issues of law and politics for a number of different sites, including uh, the Libertarian Institute, the 10th Amendment Center, the Mises Institute, and on Substack. So you can find links to all of those down below. You can also find links to places where you can go and support the show if you are so inclined, such as becoming a patron over on Patreon. Uh, your help is greatly appreciated, and doing that gives you access to a lot of extra cool little goodies that you don't get any other way. So, if you consider doing that, I would be very grateful. Now we've uh, got a lot to get to today. Uh, the first, the and, and this is I'm excited for this one because this is going to be uh, by far the best and the most interesting of the three episodes. And, and don't get me wrong, the first two were very good. Uh they were very important. I wouldn't have made them if it wasn't good and interesting information. But this is where all of that information that I've given you so far really starts to pay off and everything's really gonna start coming together. Uh so it's I, I'm really excited for this. Uh and then actually I kind of lied, there is going to be one more part, but if you remember, uh, the this was a viewer-suggested topic, uh, and there was sort of two different suggestions. The first one was about uh, the relation of the Roman Republic and our constitutional system of government. They then had a second separate question about, uh, essentially, it, it was something to the extent of how is it that modern America has made itself susceptible to authoritarianism uh, vis-a-vis their unwillingness to reform, much of the same way that the Roman Republic was unwilling to reform following the Second Punic War. So that is going to be the next episode, but that's its own uh, separate topic. That will also be a short one, so that will just definitely be one episode. It won't be stretching into uh, three like this, but that's a really interesting topic. I I really am uh, glad that he suggested that. And he also sent me uh, a video, uh, a YouTube video, uh, about what he means when he's talking about the Roman Republic and the failure to reform. Uh, And I think it's really important that you guys watch the video that he linked to me. I've seen it several times as I've been writing uh, the episode around that topic. It's a very good video. It has some really interesting information. uh, And even if you're just generally into history, it covers an incredibly fascinating part of history. So uh, definitely go and check that out. That video is also linked down in the description. Uh, But anyways, I I guess that's enough of that. Let's just uh, get right to the topic for today, huh? All right, we need to spend a few minutes talking about virtue and liberty. Now, I've already touched on the importance of virtue and liberty in the Roman Republic, and I want to briefly discuss the similarities and differences between these concepts as they were understood by the ancient Roman Republic, as opposed to the Montesquieuan revision of classical republicanism and the way those terms were reimagined by them. Now, the Latin term for these concepts would actually be virtus and libertas, respectively. And I think it's crucial to understand that virtus and libertas are not so much the antecedents of our modern notions of virtue and liberty, instead they are more like a unique but very similar conception. Now, I can't spend nearly as much time talking about this as I would like to and still expect to hold your attention, so uh, down in the video description you will find tons of links to where you can find uh, all kinds of writings uh, on virtus and libertas being discussed from the same sources that I am getting my information from, philosophers like Philo Tacitus, Brutus, Cicero, uh, people like that. So let's start with Virtus. So Virtus carries a connotation of valor, manliness, excellence, courage, character, and worth. Virtus applies uh, exclusively in ancient Rome to uh, a man's behavior in the public sphere, uh, i.e. to the application of duty, To the Republic, to Republica, where intense competition for honor was modulated by an equally intense communitarian ethos that the Republica inspired. Now, because the Republica literally belonged to and concerned all citizens, they were all bound to defend it and participate in its management. Really, all for all could have been. a a phrase that would be fitting to the Roman Republic. There was a concern for the common well-being that took precedence over self-interest or claims of friends and kin, and that is a big part of Virtus. Now, this is exemplified in an example from uh, Livy's history where he talks about the overthrowing of the final king in Rome, Tarquin the Proud, also known as Tarquinius Superbus, or as I like to call him, Superbus. Now, when the people of Rome decided that Tarquin was a dick and king sucked and we shouldn't have one of those anymore, one of the founders who drove him out was Lucius Junius Brutus. And he is a direct ancestor of Marcus Junius Brutus of Et tu Brute fame. Now, the power of the king was then transferred into two consuls, each elected for one year. Now, during a time when Brutus was one of the consuls, he found out that his sons had been part of a plot to overthrow the Republic and restore the monarchy of Tarquin, and it was Brutus's job to pass judgment. The punishment for then back then was exactly the same as it is now, anywhere, death. Now... Accounts vary on what happened next, uh, but in what was considered to be a great show of virtus, Brutus did not hesitate to sentence his sons to death, and some accounts have him executing his sons himself right there on the spot, though it is much more likely that the execution was carried out by the Lictors, who had among their duties the beheading of condemned prisoners. And it was this kind of social solidarity which called for considerable and frequent self-sacrifice, underwritten by two important and converging ideological elements that Tacitus referred to as the principles of equality and the ethic of frugality. And next is Libertas. Now the Roman Republic perpetuated a sense of libertas in their strict rules of annual elections. And this is something that you will see uh, it, what, coming back to more modern times. And the anti federalists, uh, one of their biggest complaints throughout the entire writing and ratification of the Constitution is they really think that getting away from annual elections is a terrible idea. They even came up with a slogan where annual elections end, tyranny begins, and this is where that goes back to. So, essentially, Roman Libertas was predicated on annual elections, uh, also by the rule of law and of the Constitution, uh, which was written and instituted by Lucius Junius Brutus in 509 BC, uh, and furthermore, a belief that the government was a joint effort between the Senate and the people of Rome. This is the origin of the insignia SPQR that you often see on flags and symbols from the ancient Roman Republic. It stands for Senatus Populus Que Romanus, the Senate and the People of Rome. Now this essential and original meaning of libertas, was status in the political community as a free person or a member of a political community. This led naturally to a broader understanding of the word that embraced the essential attributes of Roman citizenship and what it meant to be a free Roman and not a slave. And thus there was a close association between Libertas and the concept of Republica itself. Libertas embraced the rights that one could expect to exercise simply by virtue of being a Roman citizen. Now, furthermore, libertas also included notions of what we would call popular sovereignty, as well as the rule of law. Uh, And really, it was the first and fundamental attribute of Roman republican liberty uh, that they were to be protected by popular elections with limited terms in office, Uh, Again, it generally no more than one year for any governing magistrate. This also uh, had with it a require uh, for the expulsion of kings. Uh, And in fact, Livy described the first act of Rome's new councils as the imposition of an oath on the people that they would never tolerate a monarch again. The spirit of monarchy was, for Livy, a license of the elite while the essence of the Republican government was to give the people equal rights. Livy observed that Republican laws should be blind and inexorable, while the justice of a king is often subject to personal influence. Now, actually, this concept of Libertas, in, in its own way, uh, also well-characterized by the episode in which Rome's first consuls, Brutus, and Publius Valerius Publicola demonstrated their dedication to equal laws and popular sovereignty. Again, it's the same story, by executing Brutus' own son for treason and lowering the symbols of sovereignty, known as the Imperium, to the people in a recognition of the superiority of the power of the people over those uh, in charge, I guess you could say, those in the magistrate position. Now, with that out of the way, uh, let's move on to talking about what the Anti-Federalist Republican vision was. So, uh, just a little bit ago, I was talking about how the Anti-Federalists make a qualified, but still very strong appeal to classical Republican heritage. I say qualified because the Anti-Federalists, as we've talked about, are by no means simply classical Republicans. They share with the Federalists, and with Americans generally, a Republican vision that is much less communal, much more individualistic and commercial than the classical ideal. Their highest priority was one they shared with the Federalists, and that was the protection of individual rights and liberties. But the Anti-Federalists contend that precisely in order to protect those individualistic rights and liberties... Substantial ingredients of this old classical ideal in its Montesquian democratic reformulation of a republic must remain essential. As a Pennsylvania writer who called himself a federal republican put it, whatever refinement of modern politics may inculcate, it is still certain that some degree of virtue must exist or freedom cannot live. So right here we see the concepts of both virtus, and libertas embodied in the very words and ideas of the Anti-Federalists. Now, the Anti-Federalist position, I think, is is vividly illustrated by what they had to say regarding religion. Uh, The Anti-Federalists, as well as Federalists, were committed to individual religious freedom and hence religious diversity, yet, at the same time, The Anti-Federalists, like most Americans at the time, but not all, assume that that religious diversity would and should be a Christian one, and even mainly a Protestant diversity. And what's more, they are convinced that Protestant Christian piety and religious education in the populace are essential foundations for civic virtue and citizenship, And without a widespread belief in God who stands behind the laws, abiding justice, sanctioning morality with reward and punishment in the life to come, that too many people will be tempted to think that they may neglect their civic duties for the sake of pursuing their selfish material interests. And this is a consistent component of the ancient Greco-Roman republics and continued during the whole of the Roman Empire. And I think this is uh, well illustrated in the story of uh, Quintus Fabius Maximus. Now, this takes place during the Second Punic War, when the consul uh, Gaius Flaminius, was killed during the disastrous Roman refeat at the Battle of Lake Trasimene in two seventeen BC, and panic swept Rome because with their consular armies destroyed in two major battles, and Hannibal and the army of Carthage approaching Rome's gates, the Romans feared the imminent destruction of their city. The Roman Senate decided to appoint a dictator, and they chose Fabius for the role. As dictator, he used his soldiers for very strategic hit-and-run attacks, and was never caught in pitched battle. Now, much like this was much like Washington's tactics as commander-in-chief, which is why, uh, on top of the nickname that I mentioned in the last uh, episode for Washington, American Cincinnatus, there was another uh, commonly uh, ascribed nickname for Washington, and that was the American Fabius for his hit-and-run tactics. But really more important to our topic, Fabius claimed that these devastating losses, uh, such as occurred at the Battle of Cannae, were really the result of an impiety for the ancient Athenian pantheon of gods. At one point, he declared this was the cause of a vestal virgin who broke her vow of celibacy, and so she would become a ritual sacrifice made to the gods, which was especially brutal in the situation. They literally buried the poor girls alive. Anyways, the point is, what we see him saying here is is that this... There's this military problem we have, and it's related to something completely other than the military. It is a lack of virtue and religion. And so there there is a direct connection here between his view of every problem being a problem of virtue and religion, and to a certain degree, the Anti-Federalists having something of the same view. And it wasn't just the Anti-Federalists. Uh, in the Constitutional Convention itself... Benjamin Franklin, in one of his major speeches on June 28, had pleaded unsuccessfully for the convention to return to what he called the prayerful piety that helped inspire the revolution. Franklin notably said, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, Despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. So, the anti federalists certainly share Franklin's deep worry here, and they warn that the proposed constitutional order will excessively diminish government support for the crucial role of Christian piety and religious based virtue in civic life and education. And the Anti-Federalists even point with dismay to the proposed Constitution and its stony silence on God and God's supreme authority. Now, this is in striking contrast to the existing Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, which uh, close with an acknowledgement to the ultimate political rule of God. And some of the Anti-Federalists were troubled by the proposed Constitution's outline of ...of no religious test whatsoever for holding office. This, in Article 6, Section 3 of the Constitution, uh, this is where it says that there shall be no religious tests for qualification of office. Uh, and in response to this, uh, the Anti-Federalist, who significantly signed himself with the biblical pen name of Samuel, protested... ...that the President and Congress may consist, he said, of men of no principle... For no religion is required as any qualification to fill any and every seat. Moreover, one major reason why the Anti-Federalists argued that more power should be left to the states and localities is that they saw the state governments as being better suited to provide government support through tax dollars for local Protestant sects. And this sort of limited establishment of religion rooted in the local community and sentiment, already did exist at the time in many of the states, and it actually did continue to exist well into the 19th century. Now, the state establishments of religion were understood to go along with what the Maryland anti-federalist John Mercer termed local laws of morality, laws that, as he put it, would prohibit the abuse of wealth and institute a council of censors to punish offenders. On the model, he says, of the small federal republics, so above all Calvinist Geneva. But the concern for government support for religion and religiously based moral education was really only part of the reason why the anti-federalists argued that we needed uh, ingredients of the classical ideal uh, that we'll, it will be better maintained by keeping this balance of power weighted more towards state and local government. Even more important, they argue, is the fact that the state and local government is smaller in scale, hence less overbearing and domineering. And by the same token, and still more important, government at the state and local level tends to involve people more to, dem- people to demand more from those who serve them, thus keeping control in the people's hands, preventing and guarding against elite aristocratic tendencies. And this popular participation in and thus control over the government is most widely activated through what Richard Henry Lee referred to: the people's just and rightful control in the judicial branch. That is, through their service on civil and criminal juries. And the Anti-Federalists warned that the proposed constitution is going to contribute to a grave weakening of the people's democratic control over the judicial branch of government by uh, instituting a dramatic diminution of the power of popular juries in America which will mutilate, they say, what is perhaps the most important institution for participatory democracy. Now, if this is a particular aspect you'd be interested in learning more about, I've written a couple articles uh, and made some videos talking about the debate between Uh, Publius and Brutus and the whole idea of judicial supremacy, so I'll put a link to those down in the description. This really gets into uh, the importance of the whole idea that uh, juries are deciders of both law and fact. That's just not especially relevant right here, but it is interesting all the same. But anyways, moving on. To understand what the Anti-Federalists were getting at in this warning, we must bear in mind the important historical fact that the power of juries in America at that time not only had the right, as I actually just alluded to, not only had the right and power to determine matters of fact in a case before them, but they also had the right and the power to interpret the meaning of the law. And this was a right uh, and power rooted very much in classical republicanism. But not only there, but also in the English tradition, and it is in fact greatly celebrated by Montesquieu, who interpreted the British Constitution as placing the judicial branch in the hands of the people, giving them the supreme power through these popular juries. And it was above all this power in the juries to participate in interpreting the law and even to overrule a judge's interpretation of the law that made juries key democratic checks Aristocratic judicial activism. An anti-federalist like the federal farmer correctly predicted and foresaw that under the proposed constitution juries will lose the right to interpret the meaning of the law. Juries will be limited, they said, and they were absolutely right, to judging only the facts of the case before them. And as regards the more important power to interpret the law, the anti-federalist correctly warned. This basic, traditionally democratic power will be entirely handed over to unelected judges, who will thus become a kind of aristocracy dominating the judicial branch. And as the anti-federalist John Mercer put it, The jury, he said, is the democratic branch of the judiciary power, and as such is even more necessary than the representatives in the legislature. Why, Mercer asked? Shall we risk this important check to judiciary usurpation provided by the wisdom of antiquity? It's by the attacks on private property through the judiciary that despotism becomes as irresistible as it is terrible. And in addition to making things even worse in their view, the individuality, that these aristocratic federal courts... ...are given under this kind of institution the right to overturn local democratic jury verdicts. Meaning to say, jury verdicts will no longer be final. And the Anti-Federalists point out that... Article 3, Section 2 of the proposed Constitution... ...the Supreme Court is given, quote, appellate jurisdiction as to both law and fact, end quote. Now... It's of course not only the judicial branch of the government that the Anti-Federalists see as best kept under local popular control. Equally important, they argue, is keeping the legislative branch under such control as much as possible. The Anti-Federalists argue that at the state level, the elected representatives are more truly representative and responsive to the people's will uh, for three major reasons they argue. First, the state legislatures meet at a place, the state capital, that is closer to the people and thus better observed by the people. Second, the state legislatures tend to live more among the people and as a result are better known to the people in their personal lives and their character. And third, the state legislatures tend to resemble or mirror better the people's own character. They tend less to be an elite that live a lifestyle unlike that of the people, and here the anti-federalists in effect are articulating a specific theory of what genuinely democratic representation ought to mean. And this isn't an, this is another point that really goes back to the whole idea rooted in the uh, Roman Republic of SPQR, so not just populus K. Romanus, is that the people and the Senate should not be different things in their eyes. They should rule together. They should they should almost be two halves of the same power, uh, and they see this new Constitution as doing away with that classical Republican vision. Now, Melanchthon-Smith, who was a leading anti-Federalist speaker uh, and was a frequent debate opponent of Alexander Hamilton in the New York Convention, put things this way. The idea that naturally suggests itself to our minds when we speak of representatives is that they resemble those they represent. They should be a true picture of the people and sympathize in all their distresses. Or in the words of Samuel Chase, who had been a major leader in the revolution in Maryland, a representative should be the image of those he represents. He should know their sentiments and their wants and their desires. He should possess their feelings. He should be governed by their interests, with which his own should be inseparably connected. And, the Anti-Federalist said, is only such representatives whom the people truly know as kindred spirits, that the people will readily obey and follow with trust. As the very aptly named Brutus says, the confidence with which the, pe- the confidence which the people have in their rulers in the free republic arises from their knowing them. Now, no one expressed the critical bite of the anti-federalist theory of representation better than an unknown Massachusetts writer who signed himself Cornelius, and he put things this way. The members of our state legislature, he pointed out, are annually elected. They are subject to instruction. They are chosen within small circles. They are sent a small distance from their respective homes. They frequently see and are seen by the men whose servants they are. They returned and mixed with their neighbors, have the lowest rank, see their poverty, and feel their wants. On the contrary, the members of the proposed Congress are to be chosen for a term of years, they're to be subjected to no instruction, they're to be chosen within large circles, they'll be unknown to a considerable part of their constituents, and their constituents will not less be unknown to them. They will be far removed and long detained from the view of the con of their constituents. their general conduct will be unknown their chief connections will be with men of the first rank in the United States who have been bred in affluence, at least if not in excess of luxury. Let anyone judge whether they will long retain the same ideas as their constituents. And finally, the Anti-Federalists also argue that if the power is kept more at a state and local level, then there's more likelihood the electorate representatives coming from the agrarian middle class of farmers, the yeomanry. Uh, and remember, this is something that I talked about recently that they saw as really important uh, in the Roman Republic, is that you should have people coming from uh, the aristocracy, but from the landed aristocracy, because uh, it allows you the leisure time to be a representative and serve your people. But unlike a say, a merchant or a banker, it doesn't have a drive towards selfishness and acquisitiveness of it. So this whole idea of a, a yeoman class of uh, representatives is absolutely just completely right out of the uh, Roman Republic's way of thinking. Anyways, where was I here? Um, yeah, they would be more likely to serve if the seat of government is closer by and the meetings are shorter and frequently interrupted, and having representatives who are yeomen, tend to keep the leaders as well as the populace less luxurious, more moderate in their love of money, and in their wealth, making the leadership less tempted to luxurious greed and ambition, and making the populace less likely to divide into hostile classes, separated by vast disparities of wealth and economic interest, thus preserving more of the classical homogeneity and similarity of lifestyle that's needed for fraternal and communal spirit. Whereas the writer who signed himself Cato said in his third letter, Acquaintance, habits, and fortunes nourish affection and attachment. Or as Brutus says in his first essay, In a republic, the manners, sentiments, and interests of the people should be similar. If this be not the case, there'll be a constant clashing of opinions and the representatives of one part will be continually striving against those of another. And echoing a major thesis of Aristotle's politics, which uh, just by and by happened to be uh, James Madison's most favorite book on politics. He apparently kept a copy of it by his bedside and read it almost every night. It's just a fun little fact. Anyways, Echoing the major thesis of Aristotle's politics, we have Melancton Smith, while debating Alexander Hamilton in the New York Ratifying Convention, saying that those in middling circumstances have less temptation. They are inclined by habit to the company with whom they associate to set bounds to their passions and appetites. If this is not sufficient, the one of means to gratify will be a restraint. They are obliged to employ their time in their respective callings. Hence, The substantial yeomanry of the country are more temperate, have better morals, and less ambition than the great and latter do, not feel for the poor and middle class. A representative body composed principally of respectable yeomanry is the best possible security to liberty. The interests of both rich and poor are involved in that of the middle class. No burden can be laid on the poor, but what will sensibly affect the middle class, and any law rendering property insecure would be injurious to the rich. When, therefore, this yeoman class in society pursue their own interests, they promote interests that are at the public, for it is involved in it. But in addition to promoting moderate wealth and similarity and fellow-feeling, The leadership of the yeoman farmers at the state and local level, they believed, would bring yet another civic good. Now, the Anti-Federalists argue that it will tend to instill throughout society the healthy influence of people who are more economically self-sufficient and thus more independent in spirit. Now, no one expressed this thought more eloquently than Thomas Jefferson, who characterized himself in a famous letter as neither Federalist nor anti federalist, who, in other words, saw himself as straddling the great debate and seeing wisdom in both sides. And Jefferson's most important and somewhat classical sounding pronouncement on the moral superiority of putting powers in local government dominated by the small farmers, is found in what in the one book that he ever published. Notes on the State of Virginia, which he published in the same year as The Federalist was published and during the constitutional debates. There, in a famous passage, Jefferson says, Those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had chosen people whose breasts he has made his peculiar deposit for substantial and genuine virtue. It is the focus in which he keeps alive that sacred fire which otherwise might escape from the face of the earth. Corruption of morals in the mass of cultivators is a phenomenon of which no age nor has any nation furnished an example. It is the mark set on those who are not looking up to the heaven for their own soil and industry as does the husbandman a term for farmers, for their subsistence depend on it, the casualties and caprice of customers. Dependence begets subservience, and venality suffocates the germ of virtue, and prepares fit tools for the designs of ambition. This, the natural progress and consequence of which art has sometimes, perhaps, been retarded by accidental circumstances, but, generally speaking, the proportion which the aggregate of the other classes of citizen bear in any state, to that of his husbandmen, Is the proportion of its unsound to its healthy parts, and it is a good enough barometer whereby to measure its degree of corruption while we have land to labor, then let us never wish to see our citizens occupied at a workbench. Let our workshops remain in Europe. It is better to carry provisions and materials to workmen there than bring them to the provisions and materials and with them their manners and principles. The loss by the transportation of commodities across the Atlantic will be made up for in happiness and permanence of government. The mobs of great cities add just so much to the support of pure government as sores do to the strength of the human body. It is the manners and spirit of a people which preserve a republic and vigor. A degeneracy in these is a canker, which will soon... Eat to the heart of its laws and constitution. All right, that is going to do it for me here today. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, Remember, there's one more video coming up. I will be talking about the relationship between uh, the Roman Republic uh, and America and uh, the ability to guard against authoritarianism uh, vis a vis a failure to reform the system where needed. Uh, there is a link down in the description to the video that I will specifically be addressing called The Failures of Rome. Uh, So go uh, check that video out before the next episode because everything's going to mostly be based on that. And then I will probably, at that point, just wrap up and kind of bring together my thoughts on all three of these uh, different videos we have put together for my No Place Like Rome series. So all this left to say is, uh, you know, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you like the show, take a minute and hit that uh, thumbsy uppy button down there. If you dislike the show, you're free to hit the little thumbsy downy button if you want. If you're not subscribed to the channel already and you want to do that, it would be very helpful for me and to make sure that you always know when the latest episode comes out. And if you want to find me other places, you can find the audio and video format of the show as well as places to support the show, such as Patreon, as well as our uh, homepage. Uh, places where I publish articles, all kinds of great links like that down in the video description. So, yeah, I guess uh, until next time, this has been me, Locking Liberal for Categorical Imperatives talking about the Roman Republic, Virtue, and Liberty and, of course, as always, De Lenda as Carthago.